he snapped the little phone shut. Double homicide, two bodies in a car. Being this close, I figured I should have a look. The crime scene's still being secured, and the techs haven't gotten there, so we can still have dessert. How are you with cannoli? We split the check, and he offered to drive me home, but neither of us took that seriously. In that case, he said, we'll take the Seville. I drove quickly. The crime scene was on the west side of the intersection between the Glen and Mulholland, up a skinny, decomposed granite road marked private that climbed through sycamore-crowned hillside. A police cruiser was stationed at the mouth of the road. Milo flashed the badge to the uniform in the car, and we drove through. At the top of the road was a house behind high, night-blackened hedges. Two more black-and-whites kept us ten yards back. We parked and continued on foot. Behind the hedges was stout wooden fencing. Double gates had been left open. The bodies slumped in a red Mustang convertible parked on a semicircular flagstone driveway. The house behind the drive was a vacant mansion, a big neo-Spanish thing that was probably cheerful peach in the daylight. At this hour, it was putty gray. The top was down on the little red car. I stood back and watched as Milo approached, careful to stay behind the tape. He did nothing but stare. Moments later, a pair of crime scene techs walked onto the property lugging cases on a dolly. They talked to him briefly, then slipped under the tape. He walked back to the Seville. Looks like gunshot wounds to both heads. A guy and a girl. Young. He's in the driver's seat. She's next to him. His fly's open and his shirt's half unbuttoned. Her shirt's clean off, tossed in the back seat along with a bra. Under the shirt, she wore black leggings. They're rolled down to her ankles, and her legs are spread. Lover's Lane thing, I said. Empty house, he said. Good neighborhood. Probably a nice view from the backyard. Seize the night and all that. Sure. If they knew about the house, they could be locals. He looked clean-cut, well-dressed. Yeah, I'd say local is also a decent bet. The car's plates are being run right now. I said, any gun in sight? A murder-suicide thing? Not likely. He rubbed his face. His hand lingered at his mouth, tugged down his lower lip, and let it snap back up. What? I said. Two headshots plus, Alex. Someone jammed what looks to be a short spear or a crossbow bolt into the girl's torso. Here. He touched a spot under his breastbone. From what I could see, the damn thing went clear through her and is lodged in the seat. The impact jolted her body. She's lying funny. A spear? She was skewered, Alex. A bullet to the brain wasn't enough. Overkill, I said. A message. Were they actually making love, or were they positioned sexually? He flashed a frightening smile. Now we're veering into your territory. The techs and the coroner gloved up and did their thing under heartless floodlights. Milo talked to the uniforms who'd arrived first on the scene, and I stood around. The spear in the girl's chest appeared to be a homemade weapon fashioned from a slat of wrought iron fencing. The coroner who manipulated it free said so out loud as she carried it beyond the yellow tape perimeter and laid it on an evidence sheet. DMV came through with the car's registration. The Mustang was a one-year-old and registered to Jerome Allen Quick of South Camden Drive in Beverly Hills. A wallet in the pocket of the male victim's khakis yielded a driver's license that confirmed him as Gavin Ryan Quick, two months past his twentieth birthday. 
A student ID card put him as a sophomore at the U, but the card was two years old. In another pocket, the techs retrieved a joint wrapped in a baggie and a foil-wrapped condom. Another condom, out of the foil but unrolled, was discovered on the floor of the Mustang. Neither the girl's black leggings or her gold silk shirt contained pockets. No purse or handbag was found in the car or anywhere else. Blonde, thin, pale, pretty, she remained unidentified. Even after the spear was removed, she lay contorted, chest thrust at the night sky, neck twisted, eyes wide open. A spidery position no living creature would have entertained. The coroner wouldn't commit, but guessed from the arterial blood spatter that she'd been alive while being impaled. Milo and I drove to Beverly Hills. Once again, he offered to drop me off. Once again, I laughed. Allison would be home by now, but we weren't living together, so there was no reason to let her know where I was. Back when Robin and I did live together, I checked in most of the time. Sometimes I was derelict. The least of my sins. So you're taking the case, I said. He rode half a block before answering. Yeah, yeah, I'm a glutton for punishment. Let's get this over with. Jerome Allen Quick lived on a pretty block, a block and a half south of Wiltshire. This was the middle ground of Beverly Hills, meaning pleasant houses on fifth-acre lots that ran between one and two million. The Quick residence was a white two-story traditional, open to the street. A white minivan and a gray baby Benz shared the driveway. Lights out. Everything looked peaceful. That would change soon. Milo phoned Beverly Hills PD to let them know he'd be making a notification call. Then we got out and walked to the house. His knock elicited silence. His doorbell ring brought footsteps and a woman's voice asking who it was. Police! Lights on in the entry illuminated the peephole in the door. The door opened, and the woman said, Police? What's going on? She was in her mid-forties, trim but wide in the hips, wore green velour sweats, glasses on a chain, and nothing on her feet. Ash-blonde hair was texturized to faux carelessness. At least four shades of blonde that I could make out in the light over the doorway blended artfully. There's no good way to do what Milo had to do. She sagged and screamed and tore at her hair and accused him of being crazy and a goddamn liar. Then her eyes bugged and her hand snapped across her mouth and a retching sound forced its way through her fingers. I was the first to follow her into her kitchen where she vomited into a stainless steel sink. Milo hung near the doorway, looking miserable, but still taking the time to examine the room. As she threw up convulsively, I stood behind her, but didn't touch her. When she was finished, I got her a paper towel. When we finally made it to the living room, she remained on her feet and insisted we sit. We perched on a blue brocade sofa. She stared at us. Her eyes were bloodshot. Her face had gone white. Can I get you coffee and cake? Milo said, don't go to any trouble, Mrs. Quick. Sheila. She hurried back to the kitchen and returned with two mismatched mugs of instant coffee, a jar of powdered whitener, a plate of sugar cookies. I'm so sorry. Here, maybe this will make you feel better. Milo said, ma'am, Sheila, my husband's in Atlanta. Business? Jerry's a metals dealer. He visits scrapyards and smelters and whatever.
Milo was gentle, but he probed, and he and Sheila Quick fell into a routine. Short questions from him, long, rambling answers from her. She seemed hypnotized by the sound of her own voice. I didn't want to think about what it would be like when we left. Gavin Quick was the younger of two children. A 23-year-old sister named Kelly attended law school at Boston University. Gavin was a very good boy. No drugs, no bad company. His mother couldn't think of anyone who'd want to hurt him. No one would want to hurt Gavin. He's been hurt enough. Milo waited. She said, He was in a terrible car crash. When was this, ma'am? Just under a year ago. He's lucky he wasn't. Her voice choked. Gavin was with a bunch of friends. College friends. He was just finishing his second year at the U, was studying economics. He was interested in business. Not Jerry's business. Finance, real estate, big things. What happened? Six of them piled into a stupid little Toyota and were speeding way too fast on Pacific Coast Highway. They'd been to a concert in Ventura and were heading back to L.A. The driver, the boy who died, Lance Hernandez, missed a turn and plowed right into the mountainside. He and the front seat passenger were killed instantly. The two boys in the back seat next to Gavin were only injured slightly. Gav was sandwiched between them. He was thrown forward, and the front of his head hit the back of the driver's seat. The funny thing is there was no blood, no bruising, just the smallest bump on his forehead. He wasn't in a coma or anything, but they did tell us he'd suffered a severe concussion. He had a memory loss that was pretty bad for a few days. It really took weeks for his head to clear fully. Other than that, when the bump went down, there was nothing you could see from the outside.